Hey there. Welcome to the Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zen Heilinga. In late February 2022, Vladimir Putin shocked the world and invaded Ukraine. And while Putin's actions undoubtedly sent shockwaves across the globe, Wars are unfortunately not an unprecedented event. Putin's actions and motivations seemed largely confusing to the rest of the world, and, well, Zena and I included. For this reason, we invited Dr. Eric Min, assistant professor of political science at UCLA, whose research focuses on interstate war and diplomacy to better understand why countries go to war in the first place. In this conversation, we learned about the workings of war in general and how wars throughout modern history have started and ended. We learned that, somehow, war is actually a rational action and that states fight for a number of reasons. They fight for things like control over a piece of land or to prevent other countries from getting too powerful. And believe it or not, sometimes they fight for street cred. In this episode, we explore these different reasons countries have feuded in the past and what caused them to finally put down their weapons. We look to the rise of military technologies that are changing the landscape of war today. And all the while, we consider the importance of geography within it all. So today we're really excited to have you on here and it's sort of taught to us in school that it seems like humans and civilizations have always been going to war. Is that true or is that sort of just uh, some kind of exaggeration we're told? I believe that it is largely true that a huge dimension of human civilization is that groups of people have fought with one another in order to try to get resources or whatever else they might want. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Okay, so maybe there's something to be said, right? They say prostitution is the oldest profession, so maybe war is our oldest pastime activity. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a grim way to put it, but things are pretty grim, and I, I don't think that's completely wrong um, to say. It's been very common throughout history. So kind of then looking historically who is most likely to go to war with each other? Most of the time, when we think about wars, the vast majority of wars, even if they're not the ones that come front and center to our minds, are typically between neighbors or people who are just in geographic proximity with one another. Because oftentimes disputes or wars might be about territory, about controlling land uh, that seems valuable for some reason. So the vast majority of conflicts in the past are about trying to figure out whether one side gets to control territory over the other. And it's been in more recent history or in very specific um, kind of global cases where wars have been between people who are further apart. When we think about why wars have gotten more global in some ways over the last few years or last few decades, I would say that's a lot about the technological changes beyond nuclear weapons as well. The fact that we have 
Well, ships back in the day, centuries ago, ships were a huge innovation in war that allowed people to kind of go across oceans or bodies of water to try to make war with parties that are further away. But then you have the advent of planes and just kind of air battles and uh, being able to ship things quickly that way. Even the railroads uh, were a huge innovation back in the day in allowing you to quickly ship people across continents or countries. So all of those things have facilitated the spread of war in the sense of making them more readily global or just kind of making them between more distant actors. But most of the time, it really is between people who are near one another. That sort of reminds me about getting into fights with my sisters when we were younger over different things in the house, whether it would be like recording something on the TV or maybe some kind of toy or having access to some room. So my question is, is is there maybe also an element that we're more likely to go to war with our neighbors because we just have more to disagree about? I think that's partially true. And it's not only that there's more to disagree about, but it's that those disagreements are much more salient and they matter more because it's with people who are near you who might have policies that if they make policies sort of based on different beliefs or different things they want about the world, that directly affects you on a more day-to-day basis. So um, parties are more likely to disagree fervently and have more of a reason to start considering the use of conflict to solve their problems if they can't figure out how to resolve it using peaceful means. Okay, so that makes that definitely makes sense. So if you're more directly affected by some issue, you have more incentive to fight for it. Yes. So in a lot of political science research, one of the predominant ways we think about conflict as sort of a rational activity is to say that war is a form of bargaining. And bargaining means you're in an interaction that's essentially zero sum, where any person's gain directly leads to another person's loss. And that sort of bargaining interaction is most likely to take place between people who are, quote unquote, neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Something you said there that actually surprised me is this idea that political scientists are treating war like a rational activity, which to me sounds almost a little bit crazy. I mean, obviously, there's reasons that we go to war, but isn't the whole concept a bit irrational? Yeah, so... That's sort of the starting point of why political scientists have tried to think about war as a rational act. People will disagree to some extent about how I'm going to describe things, but even when I began learning about war out of my own personal interest many years ago, I came into it because I thought it was a fundamentally irrational act. It's chaotic. It's so destructive. It seems so consequential, and it would be interesting to understand why it happens. But if we only rely on this idea that war is irrational, then you can't actually explain why wars happen, because what you're saying is that there's no logic behind war. So where a lot of political scientists headed is saying we don't necessarily disagree that irrational factors might play into why wars take place. For example, people are emotional. Emotions might have an impact in war. And to some extent, you might say that emotions are not rational in the sense that a robot who considers whether to fight war wouldn't have emotions. You know, or we all know that humans are imperfect. We make mistakes. People might end up fighting wars because they've just miscommunicated with each other or they accidentally stepped on a wire that 
sets off a missile that launches a war. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but there are mistakes that can lead to conflicts too, and that's not rational. But it would be valuable for us to figure out, even if all those irrational things are true, is there some underlying strategic logic behind why wars happen? Because that's what you might need to know in order to have any idea of how can we even help resolve or prevent wars. So seeing war from this approach, what do we gain from war then? Yeah, so there's a lot of things uh, to be gained from war. One of the things that you might gain from war, and this isn't directly from the bargaining model and the way that we think about war, but the material or strategic value of the objects that are being disputed is obviously one of the things that motivates actors to fight wars. If they think that a piece of land has enormous value because there's a lot of mineral resources in it, or it's right next to the ocean, which gives us access to sea trade, whatever it might be, that might be one thing that you're trying to vie for in fighting a war. The bargaining model helps us to explain perhaps why certain states are more likely to actually fight a war over that as opposed to solving things more peacefully, but that's one uh, potential benefit. Another benefit that this view of war allows us to see is that for many actors, the what you get from winning a war or hopefully winning a war is preventing other parties that you don't like from becoming stronger in the future. So one of the underlying reasons why wars might take place according to the bargaining model is what we call commitment problems. And commitment problems sounds, you know, kind of dramatic, I guess, like, I don't know. But in the world of political science, commitment problems are this idea that in the world that we live in, this sort of anarchic international system, you making promises that you won't take advantage of someone is not entirely credible or believable. If you are super powerful, you have every reason to take advantage of your power to try to get more of what you want. And any promise you make to a weaker party that you won't take advantage of them is hard to believe. So what we see sometimes is that when it looks like there's two states that might already have some disagreements with each other, and one of these states for some reason or another looks like they're gonna become super powerful over time, then the state that sees this other state becoming more powerful might get nervous because they think if this state continues to just grow and we already don't like each other very much, then at some point they can turn around and really take advantage of us. And they can promise that they won't, but we all kind of know that they want to, and there's no way we can necessarily stop them. So what we need to do, perhaps, is to try to prevent them from getting strong in the first place. So can you maybe think of an example of a war that kind of took on this flavor of almost preventative? Mm -hmm. One of the best historical examples goes back quite a few years, but I still think it's worth bringing up, which is the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. Back at that time in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Russian and Japanese empires uh, saw themselves as competitors to some extent in the same general area of influence in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And for a while, the Russian empire had been growing its presence, especially in China, where it was establishing a lot of ports. It was building a large uh, railroad network throughout uh, the country. And Japan saw this as 
dangerous from their perspective that Russia was going to become too powerful and basically be too influential in that area. So in 1904, Japan decided to launch this preventive war against Russia and basically just started attacking them at their ports initially with the goal of making sure that Russia would be too weak to be able to continue this upward trajectory that Japan feared it was on. And one of the reasons why this war is so important beyond the fact that it illustrates the preventive war uh, dynamic is that Japan crushed Russia on the battlefield. Every single battle they had, it was so clear that Japan had the upper hand. And eventually it led to the signing of a peace agreement called the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905. Uh, this was mediated by President Teddy Roosevelt back in the day. It helped him win a Nobel Prize. But the agreement basically said Japan won. And it really did weaken Russia's influence in the area for a while. And this was really important because at the time, from a very Western European-centric point of view, those great powers that were all sort of vying for influence with each other in Western Europe hadn't taken Japan seriously or hadn't really paid attention to Japan because they there's racism obviously there, but also just a lack of familiarity with who the Japanese people are and what they're capable of. But as soon as they saw that Japan was trouncing the Russians, and they all know who the Russians are, uh, once they started realizing this person they knew was being demolished by Japan, it made them realize they need to take Japan seriously. And it sort of began the entry of Japan into this circle of major powers, again, a very Western-centric construct, but from sort of that perspective, Japan became a very influential global actor. So this attempt to kind of stop another power from becoming too powerful actually led Japan to becoming recognized as a very influential actor in global politics. So it helped create a bit of, of street cred, is what I'm hearing, for Japan, right? Absolutely. Because I'm yeah. imagining a bit of like a, a rocky scene where there's like the underdog that no one expects to to win, and then now everyone's taking them seriously. Yeah, and it's not just that it's some um, underdog, but I mean, this is revising what happened in the original Rocky movie, but it's as if Rocky came around and KO'd Apollo Creed. Uh, in like the third round and in the past Rocky might have been great in his kind of amateur league or sort of underground but now when you have this well-known actor that everyone else knows um, and sort of respects in some way uh, being defeated by this sort of stranger then suddenly that's what gives the stranger more street cred because they've interacted with someone you think you know which gives you sort of this uh, reference point for how powerful Japan actually is. So that's that's absolutely true. So wars also create a kind of benchmark for how powerful uh, states are. Yes, wars are one of the, not the only way, but one of the most dramatic ways in which states or actors are able to demonstrate how powerful they are. And in fact, going back to the bargaining model stuff that I talked about earlier, one of the insights that comes from the bargaining model is that wars often happen because actors need to find a way to demonstrate how strong they are, and sometimes words aren't enough to do it. The logic in that argument is that if two actors are in a dispute and they're trying to negotiate a solution, 
a lot of whether they can get more of what they want depends on whether they can get the other side to believe that if we did fight a war, I would win. And because you know I would win, you should give me more of the stuff right now peacefully. Okay, so that's actually quite interesting, right? This idea of, of war being used as a way to sort of prove your strength or kind of threaten those around you that I think is very... That is really illuminating, maybe, about what Putin is thinking, because there is quite a bit of confusion around that. But um, circling back really quick to this first type of war that we discussed, it's this land-based war. You mentioned something like they might fight over resources or coastline or something like that, but I am originally from Israel. So that place is pretty famous for being kind of constantly in a war. But the war there over the land is obviously, you know, over the resource that is that land, but there's also quite a bit more of this non-tangible value ascribed to it. So why is that? So when people have studied conflicts that involve territory or territory as a potential cause of conflict, people have typically broken the value of territory down into three different dimensions. And they're not completely mutually exclusive, but it's useful to sort of break things down in this way. One aspect of territory that makes it valuable is its material value, which is how many minerals are inside this land, um, how much water is in this land if we're in a place that might be water scarce. That might be the material value. The second dimension is what we would call the strategic value of territory, which goes to the question of whether this territory is more useful for defending our national security or just defending us during a particular conflict. So mountains and rivers would have been of immense strategic value because they create natural barriers that make it harder for outsiders to invade. And then what you just spoke to regarding Israel, I think might touch upon the third dimension of territory's value, which is the symbolic value of territory. And the symbolic value of territory is absolutely intangible because it speaks to the historical nature or the cultural kind of background, which makes territory seem like it has value because being in possession of it brings you closer to some historical, religious, cultural heritage and is tied to the identity of a particular population. And that, in many ways, is a huge undercurrent to a lot of the most long-term and unsolvable territorial disputes, the factor of symbolism, because when something has symbolic value, it makes it a lot harder to figure out ways to divide that territory. Because regardless of which side you're on, you feel like you need all of it in order to really retain the symbolic value of that land. While in contrast, the material value of territory, that might be easier to just draw a line somewhere and split stuff uh, between people. But splitting a holy land that three different religions say is a primary holy land and has so much value, that's much more difficult. So maybe there's an element that, in a sense, right, if we're taking on this war as a rational act perspective, those first two types of territorial wars that you mentioned, I could 
understand reasonably why, you know, most heads of state would say, okay, let's go to war so we can secure the coltan or let's go to war so we can secure this river. But it seems that the third type is much more tied into what you said, identity, which is highly emotional and sort of inherently irrational. So I think it makes sense to me that that's almost the least rational type of war. And in a sense, maybe that makes it really difficult to solve because people aren't per se thinking clearly. So one of the things that people have pointed out is that especially the symbolic value of territory, because it's socially constructed and is something that can sort of become more or less important to people over time, is that leaders can sometimes rally or try to rally people in particular moments to fight or care more about a dispute by just sort of pressing upon the the symbolic nature of the territory uh, because they might find that politically useful for themselves at a particular point. Um, so it's much more manipulable uh, as a way of justifying war. But I do think of the three different kinds of value of territory, it's the one that feels least deeply connected to something that's inherently rational. Because if you're willing to say that a good that we're fighting over is what we might call lumpy, which means it's you can't really split it into small pieces, you kind of have to do all or nothing, then that makes sense. But the question is, how did we get to the point where this good is lumpy or indivisible in that way? And that is very much about identity or about culture. And those are things that some people might argue aren't 100% rational, that that's something that sort of comes from being human. Okay, so kind of going off of that, right, wars don't seem to just sort of start from thin air, right? There tends to be this increasing pressure that mounts and mounts and mounts until it really just hits a breaking point. So when do we hit that breaking point? When does the pressure get so horrible that there's no longer any other rational choice but to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. It's absolutely true that basically every war has some background to it. There was something that was going on before the war took place. So every single war is preceded by actors first attempting to solve their problems using diplomacy or some kind of diplomatic agreement or negotiations, and for one reason or another, failing to make that work. The specific circumstances that kind of lead from them trying to work things out verbally to sort of realizing that they can't do it anymore and have to uh, resort to war, that varies obviously, depending on what conflict you're looking at. But this is, again, where looking at war as a rational act and as a form of bargaining might be helpful. Because what we see from thinking about war in that way is, as I said before, if states are trying to convince one another that they're super powerful so that you should give us more of whatever we want through peaceful means, then what the bargaining model tells us is that States or actors will engage in escalatory and riskier behaviors in order to try to demonstrate that they really are serious about what they want. And that once you start going into that crisis escalation dynamic, where you're kind of inching closer and closer to conflict in order to kind of hope the other side blinks first and backs down, that 
you can't pinpoint exactly when that goes off the rails, but that every single step you take to get closer to trying to make the other side back down um, increases the risk of war. What would be an example of a escalatory move? Yes. One of the classic examples of escalatory behavior is in the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the early 1960s. At some point in October of, I believe, 1962, the Kennedy administration saw that uh, missile facilities were being installed in Cuba, and Cuba's only a stone's throw away from Florida, so it was a really serious threat to the United States. So at that time, the Kennedy administration started a naval blockade around Cuba, basically using a lot of its naval forces to choke off Cuba from the outside world as a way of saying, you need to stop with this missile nonsense or else we will make you pay for pursuing this behavior, both Cuba and the Soviet Union. And President Kennedy went on television, a nationalized address, and said, this stuff's happening. If anything does happen and Cuba engages in an attack on the United States, we'll consider that an attack by the Soviet Union. We have no other option but to retaliate against the Soviet Union, basically saying we're ready to fight if you do something that we don't like. So these are all steps toward potential war where you're trying to tell the other side, I'm really powerful, I care about this, you need to back down first. We were successful there, uh, but in a lot of wars that do take place, what's happened is that you have escalatory behavior like that. Doesn't always involve nuclear weapons, obviously, but you're taking steps sort of closer to war to try to make the other side back off first, but it doesn't work. And at some point you sort of reach this moment where you can't go back anymore. And it sort of makes sense for both sides to decide fighting. So does that make war also kind of inevitable? Because you gave us a lot of a lot of reasons that cause uh, war. And uh, you can also think of that it's kind of a cyclical thing, like the economy moves in cyclical waves. Does it also mean that wars uh, happen in certain periods of time? Yeah, so the question of whether war is inevitable, there's a good contingent of people who would suggest that war is inevitable, that war and either the willingness or ability to fight war is inherent to humans, that humans are kind of seeking to dominate one another, and because humans are that way, we will always fight wars. I think we can't ever say that war will become extinct or that war will never happen again. But a lot of people would also suggest that in, especially since the end of World War II, but there's precedent for this in the uh, past beyond that as well, that we've created institutions and international laws and a bunch of other rules and ideas that decrease the likelihood of war taking place. So, for example, the creation of the United Nations after World War II. The United Nations is this institution that's designed to try to promote international peace and security. It creates this forum where all countries around the world, or almost all of them, can get together and try to discuss their problems peacefully. You can create things like the International Court of Justice, which is another place where states can bring their cases to uh a global court, basically, and try to get them resolved. The advent of atomic weapons is another factor that might make wars less common 
because if we're worried that states might start getting more involved in these wars and some of these states have nuclear weapons and the more you fight a war the more likely you might be to fire a nuclear weapon maybe states would be less willing to fight in general and we'll see kind of how that plays out with the current war between Russia and Ukraine and then maybe least tangibly changing norms and ideas about whether it's okay to fight conflict also matter a lot too. So especially following the end of World War II, there was a dramatic shift towards saying that you should not use military force to affect territorial boundaries. And that's known as the territorial integrity norm. Obviously, it is not bulletproof. It is undergoing a challenge right now as we speak. However, the fact that this idea exists and that it's like very strong and has also been written into some international law does suggest that the world that we live in now probably is experiencing fewer conflicts than what we would have had if in a parallel environment, World War II ended and none of these things had happened. So I guess that kind of brings us into this like modern world now, right? So how is modern warfare changing? Because, right, you're saying that perhaps there's an argument that we're living in more peaceful times, but are we actually using more things like drones or economic warfare or cyber warfare in place of where we used to put boots on the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that the changing technological environment or just broader environment in general has affected the ways in which wars are fought or would be fought, which in turn also affects how likely or desirable it is to fight wars with one another. So in the last 10, 15 years, drones have become a much more common feature of warfare. If you're able to use drones, these remote devices that can fly over and perpetrate attacks or do whatever you need to without putting boots on the ground, then many people would argue that using drones can increase the potential cost that you think you'll suffer from war because you can minimize the number of casualties you suffer while still accomplishing many of your aims. And that uh, is a double-edged sword because on one hand, Using drones might mean that you're able to do more targeted missions and attacks that are less likely to escalate into full-out war because you're able to kind of do more surgically what you're trying to do. That's not always successful. That's sort of the idea behind what drones can accomplish. But on the other hand, because drones do allow you to accomplish some of these objectives without worrying about as many human casualties, it does increase some of the appeal of fighting a war because you don't think that there will be as many losses to it. Um, so on one hand, drones might limit wars that take place, but on the other hand, they also make it easier for policymakers to think, why not fight a war? Because we don't have to suffer as many human casualties, which research has shown is usually like the, the biggest thing that upsets people, obviously, and makes wars uh, deeply unpopular. With respect to economic interdependence, 
a lot of scholars would actually argue that economic interdependence and the fact that the world is more deeply connected with trade now than it ever has been in the past is one of the reasons why wars should be less frequent. Because with greater economic interdependence also brings the ability of many states to have leverage over other countries' economies. And the idea here would be that if you know that other countries have leverage over you economically, then you'd be less willing to engage in warfare because you know that it might destroy uh, your mutual trade or that other countries will start withdrawing trade from you. And that might be one of the reasons why the United States and China, despite the power dynamic concerns we have between them, wouldn't fight a war because their economies depend so much on one another. And then thirdly, with cyber warfare and cyber attacks, that's still a very uncertain environment. Cybersecurity and cyber attacks are a very new realm that I think many countries are still trying to figure out what to do with. So it's only in the last few years that countries have started putting together cyber commands or distinct parts of the military apparatus that are meant to work with um, cyber attacks, either perpetrating cyber attacks or defending countries from cyber attacks. So far, cybersecurity and cyber attacks have been more sort of a day-to-day -day concern with just sort of national security and making sure things are safe. They haven't yet been launched as central aspects of a war strategy so far. Uh, but there are really important questions about whether cyber attacks constitute acts of war and people haven't yet come to an agreement on that. Yeah, so I think like segueing from that, this sort of new sort of cyber world we live in, something that popped into my mind was, do we see some sort of new impact of social media in how we think about war or how we even influence populations or sort of in general, are we seeing that social media is changing this landscape? Yes, I would say certainly social media has changed the landscape of war, both in creating justifications for warfare or continued warfare and um, trying to influence whether states engage in warfare. And this has actually been a, a place where the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really spotlighted how important social media can be to navigating conflicts because the immediacy of seeing the violence from the ground uh, can change people's perspectives about the war and especially any atrocities that might be taking place against Ukrainians that are filmed and put online. That changes public sentiment. It sort of motivates people to um, sympathize a lot more with Ukraine. And then we also see that people like President Zelensky in Ukraine have been quite skilled at using social media and speaking to the public as a way of mobilizing support for Ukraine and shifting public sentiment against Russia. And in a lot of ways, I would argue that President Zelensky's one of the first world leaders to have shown the potential of social media to 
do this, partially because we haven't had an interstate war like this in almost two decades, and social media has obviously become a lot more important in the last two decades. But the degree to which information about what's going on has really circulated on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever you want to call it, um, has influenced the ways in which people see war, how much of the war they're also able to see, and how much influence they can try to put on their leaders or companies they think are relevant or other states um, to either be involved in the war or less involved in the war. And more and more research does show that that social media environment has become a really important um, town square to some extent for the discussion of of conflict and um, shaping people's sentiments. So... We've definitely spent a lot of time on this podcast now talking about why states go to war, what happens when they're in war. So let's take a second and think about the opposite. When do wars stop? When do they end? When do both sides say enough is enough, aside from the obvious, you know, knockout situation, like we saw maybe in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II? When do we reach a point like we did, for example, in the war between U.S. and Vietnam, where we just say we can't do this anymore? The question of when we decide to start settling wars, to some extent, depends on what was the initial motivation for fighting the war at all. But wars tend to come to an end for two main reasons. One would be that your resolve, your willingness to continue fighting the war has collapsed. And it doesn't mean that materially you're unable to fight anymore, but something about like domestic politics or internal support for the war falls apart. And a leader believes that if I continue this war in this condition, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So I don't want to continue fighting anymore. With respect to Vietnam, when the United States withdrew from Vietnam, the U.S. could obviously have continued fighting if it wanted to. The U.S. was so much more massive militarily than the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong. But the reason we withdrew was that we didn't have the tolerance for casualties that North Vietnam did. And it was becoming too politically toxic to continue fighting this war. And potentially under slightly false pretenses as more information came out about the war, um, where it became clear that the United States realized they couldn't win, that they chose to withdraw, even though they could have continued fighting. The other main reason why wars come to an end is that war stops becoming as useful to fight when it loses its informational value, which means that if we fight sufficiently enough that both of us largely agree like how powerful we are relative to one another or how resolved we are relative to one another, then we don't need to keep fighting. Like if I know that you are going to continue to defeat me on the battlefield moving forward, there's no more purpose to me continuing to fight you anymore. I just want to stop. And the other side would realize I could continue beating you, but I don't want to suffer these costs either. So it's usually when Wars reach a point where everyone can commonly understand what the future trend of the war would be, that these conflicts are more likely to be settled 
and where the negotiated agreements that are signed by the um, belligerents would reflect what they feel that they've learned from fighting and what they think would happen if they continued to fight. Right now, with respect to Russia and Ukraine, I think we're still at a point where we don't know for certain what the future of the war is. It's still sort of in flux. Russia continues to change its strategies, so they haven't really stopped in terms of um, trying to get more information about how much they can succeed. So we probably won't see a conclusion to that conflict in a while. Um, And then the one last thing that I'll also mention, too, is that historically speaking, wars often also come to an end when leaders in one or both or all of the states change. Uh, What we find is that oftentimes when leaders begin wars, they often feel stuck in the war, that they need to sort of demonstrate that they can win. And they put a lot of reputation, their own personal reputation on the line, whether that's real or not, they feel that. So historically speaking, a lot of wars end when at least one side has a new leader come in saying, I have a fresh attitude or perspective. I don't want this war. In fact, I might have been put in office because people don't want us to fight anymore. And that's oftentimes when these wars come to a conclusion as well. And we'll see uh, to what extent that matters in the particular conflict we're seeing now between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. And it would also maybe add up that we live in a more peaceful world now that there are more sort of functioning democracies. So we are seeing leaders changing more often. So that definitely does make sense, um, at least on my end. So just to finish out this podcast, um, we like to ask all of our guests this one final concluding question, because ultimately our goal here is to try to understand a little bit more about what geography is. And so clearly you are a political scientist. You are trained as a political scientist. So we really brought in sort of someone from, I would say, a related but not exact fit of a field. So to you, what is geography? Wow, you've actually ended with what I think is the most difficult question of everything you've asked (laughs) today. I honestly don't have a good pre-established answer for that. Um, I would say that geography is power. And that in many cases, when we look at conflicts, and a vast majority of conflicts are about territory, not all of them, but a healthy share of them, much of the time, the reason why territory is so important to actors and why they fight over it is because they think that having a certain piece of territory increases their power, which means their ability to influence other actors into doing what they want to do. So a lot of the motivation behind conflict is an attempt to amass power. And if a lot of wars are about territory, which is a function of geography, what mountains we have, what access to water we have, etc., then geography defines what power states have and what motivations they have to try fighting with others to continue amassing additional power. 
That's a great answer. For someone who said that was a tough question, you came up with that pretty quickly. <laughs> Only because I guess I've thought about it a, a little bit, like, you know, the, the general idea. Um, but yeah, that was that was the curveball. <laughs> well, we, we're happy to keep it at least a little bit interesting. And of course, we were super happy to have you here with us today. Um, and I learned a lot. I personally really love the idea of calling states at war belligerents because it makes me think of two drunk idiots. <laughs> so that actually made me smile personally. This podcast was made possible by Utrecht University. Yay. Okay.